So for this episode of the podcast, I'm real excited. I've got Angelo Medici of Live Oak Bank out of Wilmington, North Carolina. This is a really big episode for me because Live Oak Bank is the largest lender of SBA-based loans. And through the Jim Real Estate Company, where we help gym owners lease and buy buildings, that's a partner I need to help my clients achieve the end goal of being able to either purchase a building or in some cases, the SBA loans that Live Oak will do frequently are for purchasing other businesses. So for a client who maybe is going to buy the business and the building from somebody or buy a business solo without the building, they have great SBA loan products. They are the largest SBA loan lender in the US. They still hold the crown, the largest at it. So anyone who's working with me, this is probably who I'm going to be sending you to if we're going to need SBA-based financing. But I want to put you guys in contact with them. If any of you guys were not working together, but you want to get in contact with Angelo, go check out the show notes. Uh, click on that link. If you send me the information, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to forward this on to Angelo and his team over at Live Oak so they can start talking to you about the different loan products they have, walk you through kind of their SBA process of lending, talk to you about what your needs are, what you would qualify for, all that. Go ahead. Link is in the show notes down below. But really, enjoy this conversation with Angelo and myself. I'm probably going to have him back on because I didn't get to ask. I didn't get, you know, get half the questions I wanted to out on this one. So I'll definitely have Angelo back. Enjoy. What is up, guys? It is Stu. And it's another episode of the What the Fuck Gym Talk podcast. And I've got my man, Angelo Medici from Live Oak Bank out of Wilmington, North Carolina. Live Oak is the largest SBA lender in the country. Is that still, is it still your claim to fame? Still holding the crown. Yes, sir. Still, still holding the crown. Who's second to you? Um, I believe at the moment, Hunt Huntington Bank uh, is number two. It had, you know, historically been Wells Fargo. Um, okay. who we overtook uh, for number one back in 17. Um, but they've slowed down uh, at the same time hunting Huntington's been speeding up. So they've, uh, they've actually taken over second spot now. So. Got it. And yeah. for everyone listening, you, this is, it's really unique because I'll get a client coming in, um, you know, for the gym real estate company and they're, Hey, I want to buy a thing or fund the thing, whatever it may be, acquisition or upfit or this or that. And when I tell them there is a bank that specifically has a brick and mortar department for wellness and fitness, that's, I think they think sometimes I'm full of shit, especially sure. post COVID when so many yeah. banks and landlords ate shit due to the brick and mortar health and fitness industry. Why did Live Oak, before we get into like a lot of the ins and outs of lending, but why did Live Oak decide to do that and when? Yeah. Yeah, no, it's a great question. Um, I think taking a little bit of a step back outside of that particular question as it relates to the health and wellness and fitness side of things, um, just Live Oak as a bank in general, um, from the day we were founded back in 2008, um, Another you know crazy piece of our story. As most banks were closing, we were crazy enough to try and ask for a charter. Um, lucky uh, the founders did, and we were able to to receive it because it's been you know onwards and upwards ever since. But from very uh, from the very beginning, we've been industry specific lenders. So our first industry or vertical, as we call them internally, was actually lending to veterinarians. Um, that was mostly a function of uh, a lot of early kind of 
you know, high level lenders that came on board were were BB&T at the time, you know, lenders who had a big presence in the Southeast, great veterinarian, you know, school programs, yada, yada. That was their field. Um, so started with, you know, vets and, you know, now sitting here in 2023, we're in 45 plus different industries, but we've kept that model for every single industry that we lend in. So there's a team of individuals that instead of being based somewhere um, and looking at deals in that region uh, specifically, like most banks are, um, you know, one day it's a, a dentist walking in that needs a loan. The next day it's a, a gym owner. The next day it's, you know, a veterinarian. And because you're geographically in that area, you look at all of those deals. Um, we flip that. So we're all based for the most part here in Wilmington, North Carolina at our headquarters, but we work specifically within industries. Um, you know, again, one of those 45 that, that we lend to currently, um, myself and another colleague of mine back in 2018, um, we launched the fitness center lending team or vertical again, as we call them internally. Um, you know, the most attractive thing about it, I think was, you know, a, the, the nation and overall world's general continued increase in awareness of health and wellness and be, you know, a, a business model that for the most part, you know, strives off of monthly recurring revenue, right? So it's really attractive, um, low default industry, um, actually, if you look, you know, pre-COVID. Um, and that's where that? we- try So to- walk me through that, because that, that's surprising yeah. to me, low default. Yeah. Now, well, let me put it this way. It's low default by the nature of the people you're giving loans to, which essentially just means you're really good at not giving loans to uh, businesses that don't have a high probability of paying it back. Sure. Yeah, no, that's part of it. You know, certainly since we've been in the space, um, Live Oak, again, in general, just as a company, we we have, you know, one of, if not still the lowest default rate um, out of any bank in the country. And, you know, the verticalization and in industry, um, you know, special specialization certainly plays a role in that. Um, but back, you know, when we started this, this was all data that was taken from, you know, years prior and other banks lending. So, even without our, you know, special touch or whatever you want to call it, or our focus, um, the fitness industry as a whole, when it comes to SBA loans, um, you know, going back, you know, a decade uh, leading up to uh, COVID was always, you know, one of the the lower default industries um, just in the SBA lending network. You know, I think a lot of that is probably tied to, you know, majority of, of you know, the SBA loans to fitness and wellness uh, businesses are, are going to be franchise locations, just generally speaking, right? So when you have the support of, you know, a franchise or um, A, that can help B, you know, even if that business owner maybe struggles, um, the franchise is going to come in and probably, you know, buy them out of it to, to keep it from, you know, closing, not in every case, but, um, you know, there's some unique situations that, you know, prevent, you know, some defaults that may not be in place in other industries, but, I think just gener- uh, generally speaking, you know, uh, fitness centers uh, across the country ha- have just done well. Um, and, you know, again, it's narrowed to those, you know, who took out SBA loans or received SBA loans. So it's not everybody, but, um, you know, very safe place to be. And, you know, that's kind of how we approach new industries is, you know, obviously it's not reinventing the wheel. SBA has a list of, you know, lowest default industries and kind of pick through those and see, you know, what we, we kind of have an appetite for that, you know, we have a team that uh, we could assemble to, to go to market within. Still interesting to me on the default thing are, 
are these loans assumable? Because I, I've heard numbers and people have given me failure rates in the fitness industry, right? Sure. And one thing that doesn't get factored into those is the gym that is by most definitions and um, analysis failing yet mm -hmm. it is going to do some kind of an AM or sell to someone else and just kind of transfer everything over. Are these loans assumable so that it never really goes into default because the next person who's green and excited can pick up the ball, that exact loan and run with it, with that business. So there are situations where, you know, someone may want to, you know, take over a business and assume all of the debt that comes with it. And maybe there's an SBA loan on there. I would say far more commonly, you know, people are you know, elect to do asset purchases in those scenarios. So that's going to require that whatever loan they take out, um, you know, to purchase this business failing or not, in theory needs to be, you know, at or above the the level of what that debt balance is. And then it gets paid off, even if they simultaneously are taking out their own new loan. Um, you know, there's also individuals that, you know, this was maybe a side entrepreneurial venture for them. Um, and they didn't quite cut the ripcord maybe on their their day job or their career. And sure, the business is, is struggling or failed. And, you know, maybe the assets or was able to sell the entire business wasn't enough to pay off the loan. But they have, you know, a small enough payment every month you know, now that their outside income can support that moving forward. So that business could be gone, closed, but that loan, you know, didn't suffer default as long as, you know, the payments are still being made. So there's a lot of different things that can come in, right, and 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 keep a loan from, quote unquote, defaulting, um, even if a business has failed that that loan was, you know, originally taken out for. Um, as long as payments are being made and and the government didn't, take a loss, then it wasn't a, a default. Got it. And for everyone listening to this, I uh, I got the first listen to Angelo on uh, my buddy, John Franklin and Mateo's podcast, uh, Jim Worldwide. And it, I, cause I want to, I'm going to run this a little bit differently today, guys. I'm not going into the basic, like shit. You can Google what's an SBA 7A loan. What's an SBA 504. I, I want to get into some different conversations. So if everyone's listening to this and it starts feeling a bit, a bit above your head, go listen to like the hour. Or so Angelo did on their podcast several months ago. Awesome episode. I mean, chock full of info. I thought I listened, I remember going for a run and listening to the whole thing start to finish. And I thought it was really well done. Um, but I just, yeah, like I'm, I want to get into some tighter things here. You may just mentioned uh, these scenarios where maybe a gym owner had it as a part-time gig and didn't pull the ripcord. Yeah. It's really interesting. So I personally, when consulting with someone and take and started doing a concept gym, I generally love the idea of a gym owner maintaining a full-time W-2 elsewhere. I feel it helps us when we have to go to the bank and show this idea, this concept it's generally what it is. Maybe it's not a franchise. Um, sure. There's also this other, the, the the person is also a bank as well. He's able to also help fund it. And I also, from a, maybe I don't, I'm curious how you see this as, as on the banking side. I like the idea that that gym owner, when they go part-time, typically has to fast forward and invest in staff right away versus what most small business owners do is wear every hat and then all they do is dream about the day when they take the hats off. And then that, that process is always so messy and hard for them to delegate or this or that. Whereas a part-time gym owner has to do it from day one. 
because I mean, which make which makes it, in my opinion, look a lot more like a real business versus mm-hmm. the guy that gets a small business loan and wears every single hat. He has a job. So mm-hmm. what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, no, I think, you know, you make a lot of good points there and, you know, listen, there's, there's the ideal world and and that ideal world is probably somewhat of a catch 22, right. To some degree, you know, we want our applicants and, and, you know, proposed business owners to be, you know, really sold on their business, right. And invested in what they're doing. Um, but we also, you know, love to see that there's some alternative source of income, um, you know, not associated with the business venture, um, you know, that can help support things uh, if ramp up goes a little bit slower or, you know, someone opens up across town, you know, two years in and you have a couple months of, of a lull. Um, it's always good to have cushion. Um, but, you know, like I said, being invested and in, in kind of having your hands on everything that's going on in your business is important as well. And that's where I think, you know, we look at it similarly to the way you described it, you know, having that outside income, it's a tough, you know, first six months, maybe balancing opening a business and keeping whatever your outside, you know, employment may be. And, and that's a big piece of it too, depending on what you do and what your hours are, what your ability to, you know, spend an hour at lunch, checking in on uh, whether it be calling the gym or, or just getting into, you know, everything's remotely, you know, accessible these days. If you can't do that, then, you know, it's probably, you know, something to consider if, if, if this, starting a business is is really in the cards or a good idea, period. Um, but if you can manage that, again, the first six or so months, you will, you know, inevitably a work kind of harder to to reach a point where, you know, it maybe settles your life down a little bit, but be empower and train your employees to think like owners from day one, which I think is one of the more important things out there, um, especially in today's society you know, with the younger kind of generations and, and the the people you're probably putting in some of these managerial or, you know, training positions, um, you know, they want to feel empowered um, and, you know, to, to avoid kind of everyone looking at, you know, you, you, them as employees in their day to day as clock in, clock out, but think about it the way you do as an owner, you know, early and often empowerment, um, you know, I think makes for a longer term success. Because like you said, a lot of people get in there, they do a really good job. Six months later, they take that hat off. And three months later, they realize, you know, my staff isn't in a position to run this the way I was running it. But it's really difficult to ask that of someone if, you know, they're not empowered to learn the business, the operations and make decisions while you're still in there as well. Two questions on that exact thing. Um, let's do the first one. When someone comes to you for a loan. Yep. And... Are they able to roll in what their payroll co- like? Hey, I'm also with this thing. I need to have these two or three key employees, and that's going to cost me one twenty over the first sixteen months. Mm-hmm. I need that. I like. Can I? Can they also apply for cash for payroll as well? Yeah. So we, you know, fund a, a chunk of what's called working capital, right? It's kind of a catch-all, um, I guess, allocation or you know, bucket. Um, majority of, of that will be earmarked for, you know, staff and marketing expenses that are going to come up. You know, every situation is different. It's based on your projections to a degree. How quickly do you think you're going to, you know, get in the black, um, start making month or money, excuse me, uh, profits month over month. You know, if that's three months in, then that working capital figure is going to be lower than someone who's projecting that 
to maybe be month nine or month 12, um, you know, because at some point uh, the cash flow should be sufficient in the business itself, right, to start making those payments. So there's not a flat, you know, every request comes with 12 months worth of, you know, payroll or, or what have you. But the short answer is yes, absolutely, you know, pre, pre-ramp up, you know, marketing, you know, post-opening staff, um, those expenses are kind of bundled into a working capital allocation that you then, you know, request draws on during the first X amount of months of your, of your loan, um, you know, kind of funding. Um, and, you know, we deposit that money right into your account as you're, as you're needing it. The other good thing about that is you're only, you're only, I guess, you know, billed in your monthly payment for funds that are dispersed. So, you know, when we hold that big chunk of working capital that, you know, you need for the first nine months, um, we disperse it as you need it over that, you know, so nine it's months an LOC. That's a lot kind of, of. Uh, yes, but it doesn't revolve, right? Once it's over, it's over. Once it's yeah. funded, it's funded. But your your monthly payment, those first, you know, month one is going to be lower than it will be inevitably by month nine when yeah. all that's dispersed. But you save a little bit money uh, of money versus funding all of that at close, knowing you won't need, you know, all of it in day one. When I first started the business, uh, Angela, I had, a, I, I had been in the industry in like the Global Gym Health Club and running health clubs and all that kind of shit. And then when I when I started my thing. I went to a small bank here that had a good, decent SBA arm. And I went to him. I said, Hey, I'm going to start this outdoor boot camp, and I'm going to roll it into a brick and mortar and do this CrossFit thing. And I had no look back, no years previous yeah. of business. It was a true startup. And while the amount of money I was looking for was very minimal, like it was like 10 or $12,000. It was a, it was a no, because we just don't have that. Two years later, I went back to the exact same bank, that exact same broker. And, mm-hmm. uh, with the bank officer and uh, brought her the numbers. And I got that, I think it was a $12,000 line of credit. It was exactly as you, it wasn't revolving. It was just, I drew, I drew from it. I only paid on what I drew. And um, that got me, but we moved to a new facility. That same banker, I mean, literally would come and check on me. I mean, we just stopped by the gym randomly. Like that close knit relationship was very, very cool to have. And I, for anyone listening to this, um, that's my first true story on the SBA. Like I, I had such good feels and I generally anything government funding bank wise, probably wouldn't trust it. But then when COVID happened, the, I had my 504 loan out on the building I bought. And I mean, when COVID hit, they instantly suspended all payments and it's not like it was deferred. You guys, right. I mean, the SBA took care of all of it, the first yep. six months. And there were extensions that happened beyond that. And it was, I, I thought it was absolutely incredible, the level of service that they gave to, especially my industry uh, during COVID. So for anyone listening to this, you know, obviously Angel's here to talk about the SBA, but when you go in and start exploring loan options, you have traditional loans and you have the SBA. I generally warn people, be careful going to just a regular bank and walking in and saying you want an SBA. I feel that regular loan officers don't love the idea of splitting the position on the loan necessarily with the SBA or do they? But I, and the reason I ask that is I, I'm generally getting clients come back like, oh, my such and such loan officer at my regular bank is telling me not to go with the SBA. And the only thing they ever blame it on is timeline, like yeah. how long it takes for a loan to come to fruition at the SBA. Why would a traditional bank have any, or if, do you believe they have any prejudice or uh, towards those SBA based products? 
We're going to get back to the podcast in just one second, but just a reminder, guys, the Gym Real Estate Company is open nationwide. If you are a gym owner in the United States and you are looking to lease or buy a building, do not work with that fuckface broker in town. Trust me, they are not able to hold a candle to the suite of services that the Gym Real Estate Company is now providing. We are doing site suitability, operational capacity analysis, 36-month proformas, and we're providing one year of business consulting if you sign with us and we sign a lease or buy a building with you. Guys, it's it's absolutely like there's no classification of a business professional doing what I'm doing with the Gym Real Estate Company. I would love for the opportunity to work with you. Send me a DM at Gym Real Estate on Instagram, and I'd love to talk with you about what you've got going on. All right, back to the podcast. So, you know, coming from someone who's who's only worked at Live Oak as far as, you know, banking experience goes, it, it's hard for me to say definitively. What I can say is, you know, uh, probably these days upwards of, you know, 40% of our 1,200 employees are people who, you know, over the past eight to 10 years have come from other banks. So i you know, have heard enough stories and kind of asked these questions myself to understand, you know, I know we're different, but I haven't seen it in action, right? Because I haven't worked el- elsewhere. Um, you know, but I'm not over- far off. Are you saying what I, my, my experience is, is that right. com- it, it, common? It's not uncommon. So unless you're at one of the kind of the top two to three, you know, meaning at this point, us, Wells, Huntington, you know, SBA loans are a government back, you know, program that, um, come with additional, you know, documentation requests and processes that non-preferred lenders within the SBA's network just don't want to go through. Um, A, they probably don't understand it uh, enough to even move you along through the process because a lot of, you know, traditional banks that offer SBA, they're not forced to, but they're kind of forced to, Right. So they're going to steer in their easier, um, you know, more well-known process. They're going to tell you SBA is is a longer process, and it it probably is for them. Again, if you're an SBA preferred lender like we are, like a Wells is, like a Huntington is, um, you skip a step in the process that your smaller local banks or even local or regional banks uh, can't skip, which is after you've gone through the internal process with the bank of getting, you know, underwriting uh, and approval from credit before you can go into closing. A lot of banks have to submit that physical package of paper through FedEx or what else, what have you to Sacramento to the SBA's actual headquarters. And that file needs to be reviewed and approved by the SBA prior to you, the bank, being able to close and fund it. When you're a preferred lender, that's entire process is skipped. The SBA has given us their blessing that we do enough of these at a high enough level that we know what we're doing and they don't need to check our work ahead of time. Now they're going to audit us every year, like every other, you know, agency and make sure that we're not abusing that power, which we, we of course aren't, but that's a good two to three months, depending on how quick the SBA is moving. Part of the process that a lot of the horror stories you hear and likely to address your question of, a lot of individuals you've you know, worked with being told by their lender they don't want to do it. They don't want to sit and wait for two to three months any more than you as the customer want to sit for two and three months uh, on that SBA process. So, um, you know, again, we, the other top lenders don't have to deal with it. And that's 
you know, really where you're seeing a time savings, like for us, a conventional traditional loan versus an SBA loan is probably going to have a three to five day difference on the timeline. And that's quite literally because there's maybe a handful more documents that could take upwards of three to four, five more days to, you know, complete and turn around. But literally that's it. I mean, you're talking the difference of probably, you know, 25 to 35 days, right? Uh, conventional being able to be done closer to 25 to 30, SBA taking, you know, 30 to 35. So it's very minimal uh, if you're a preferred lender. Got it. And just for everyone listening, the, the main loan products you guys run with, like in your portfolio of lending, it probably comes out to with the, the 7A, the 504, and then what, what's the next biggest, what, what's the next most common loan that you guys are doing? That's it. That's it. Just those Just two. Those are, yeah, those are the two. Really, you guys aren't doing any of those express or micro loans. So we'll do express. And I apologize, I should have broken that out. They're called Seven A Express. So I lumped that into kind of you know the the same bucket. Yeah. And I would say to expand on that. You know, I would say ninety percent of what we do is is Seven A. Um, even if real estate is involved, which you know for the listeners, um, you know, quickly. 504 versus 7A loan program. The 504 loan program provides a little bit um, more incentive and is better used potentially for real estate projects, but- Real estate solo over, projects. So we're not sure. buying a, biz, a business right. with the, yeah. Yep, yep. Just, you know, you're leasing a space, maybe you found a building, you want to move it. Um, but at the same time, unless that building's, you know, a couple million bucks or more, um, you know, on a 504 loan, you are involving another third party and we don't necessarily need to get into that, but it's called the CDC. So you have kind of two lenders on that. That can take longer. Um, you know, the the loan term is most likely going to land at a 20 year, um, even though it can be 25. A lot of CDCs like to keep it at 20. So long story short, the savings by being able to do 7A over 25, which you can use 7A for anything, uh, figuratively speaking. Uh, again, 504 only for real estate. Uh, majority of what we do is 7A. Um, and, you know, we don't have a boatload of of real estate transactions annually, you know, probably 15 to 20 um, of the, you know, 75-ish deals we'll do a year. Um, but that's just the nature of the business, right? A lot of fitness centers or health clubs are in, you know, strip malls or outlet malls or what have you. Um, there certainly are you know, outliers and we do fair amount of real estate, but just less common in this space than it may be in, in others, um, which also leads to a lower amount of 504. Yeah. And, and you know, my mission with the, the gym real estate company, that was, that was the best way I was ever to deploy any of the, the success we had with my gym over a decade was, was yeah. into the real estates. Um, but you're right. Yeah, for a lot of these guys, if we're if you're like, hey, my spot has got to be in uh in shopping plaza base, you know, suite A type scenario, or you know, even for the health clubs, right? Health club, you know, taking over a dicks or something like that. It, it probably is not gonna be advantageous at that point or make a lot of sense to own the real estate as well. Um mm -hmm. for that club. Very few uh urban active fitness was a big one. They they were huge. I mean, they were essentially just a real estate company that installed health clubs in it. And then LA Fitness bought them out back in like, I don't know, it was like 2011 or 12 or 13, somewhere around there. And um, and they still hold the real estate. So yeah. they sell the business and now they yeah. got the tenant in there, which is, you know, a cool yeah. play. Um, so with earlier, we were talking about 
you know, um, we're talking a little bit, just a little bit about like uh, what are our expectations. So you're, when I was asking you about getting cash for payroll and you're like, well, you know, we, we're hoping to see a certain level of growth in the business and things like that. So are you guys asking for pro formas, you yep. know, uh, projections from these, these gyms? And if so, what are your biggest red flags that when you see one, you're like, yeah, that's unlikely to happen, sir. I think we need to, we need to question the, the accuracy of it. Yeah. You know, it's um, I guess starting off. Yes. You know, pro forma, course of business plan, um, personal information, yada, yada, yada. But, you know, on that pro forma, you know, we specifically look for, you know, two years broken out month over month. Like we really want to see those first 24 months, you know, quite literally monthly, how you think you'll do yep. Uh year three can kind of be annualized because, you know, have a good run rate at that point. But, you know, what I always tell people about projections is they're never going to be wrong, right? And, and you know, they're kind of always wrong, right? It's just a matter of uh, on what side of the equation, right? Um, I'm not here to tell someone their projections are wrong. Um, just like, you know, I would expect that if I see something in it, it's not forced upon me that they're, they're definitely right. Um, it's about looking at all the data, looking at all the factors and kind of landing, does this seem feasible, right? We know it's not going to be down to the penny on any of these things, but is this generally a feasible timeline for what your business model is, what you're charging, where you're located, yada, yada. Um, I you would say standards that, that you, that you compare it again. So let's say I'm giving you a 24 month pro forma and I'm showing uh, annual growth rate of 72%. And you're like, well, may, maybe not. Right. Maybe, yeah. maybe not. And here's why yeah. like you, you, you are, you, when you do have to come back to the, the applicant and ask about, okay, so how did you arrive to this number, the month over month or year over year? Are you guys comparing that to the data that you've been, that you've seen in other pro formas? Yeah. And, you know, just the, the great thing about being in the space for as long as we have and doing, you know, all types of deals for different types of clubs is our existing portfolio is, you know, the best, reference point that that we could ask for so depending on what again the particular business model is you know i can go back and look at not only someone from three four years ago what they projected um but also how they actually did right and you get you know four five six ten of those you know kind of in in the portfolio for a few years um, that's a good enough reference point, you know, while it's not maybe a hundred of every type of possible business model, you know, 10 over a few years is a pretty good reference point for, for us to go and say, Hey, listen, you know, not here to tell you that you can't reach what you're projecting to reach here, but here's like the average of, of 10 of these very similar, you know, deals that I've done historically. Um, you know, why do you think that you're going to kind of exceed what the norm has been, right? There may be a very good answer. Um, there may be a brand new, you know, 3000 home development just went up next door, you know, that, uh, you know, there's a million different things I could think of on why that answer would come back and be reasonable. Um, but that's how we go about asking the questions, you know. Um, I also, in my you know, life have, have been a club owner. Um, so I've been in there, you know, doing this and and have done it in the real time. I've seen what owners go through, what you're going to go through if, if you're just starting one. And, you know, I'm not the gatekeeper of, you know, my experiences being, you know, 
the 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 general you know kind of outline for the entire industry but it is helpful and you know there's some things that i know um you know to ask and look out for and maybe you know challenge you as the the applicant on that that maybe you haven't thought of and that doesn't mean you're not going to be a better gym owner than me it's just you know from what i've seen and done uh, over you know going on 10 years now at live oak in particular in what eight years doing five years doing fitness at this point, five and a half years yeah. doing fitness. So seen a lot. Um, I'm, you know, made to, to be wrong. Uh, and when I am uh, in my mind, it's a good thing. I, I'm happy to be wrong if it means you did better. Um, and I'm okay being wrong if, if I say no, you know, and, and it does work out for you elsewhere, just because, you know, we don't take these decisions lightly. A lot of people are putting their livelihoods on the line to get this loan and make it, work. And again, you know, we're not the gatekeepers of, of all things that are going to work and, and not work fitness. But, you know, when we do tell people, no, there's a, there's a really good reason. And it's not just because we don't want to work with you for, for some reason, it's because, you know, we're kind of a, a step removed from you as the owner, you're passionate. We love that. Uh, sometimes you can't see certain things in front of you, or, you know, you're telling yourself, uh, you know, you're not seeing it when, when deep down, you know, um, so you, Again, always happy to be be wrong when we move forward on something that I, I've had someone tailor those expectations back. Also, you know, happy to be wrong when, you know, I get a call from someone like you had with your situation a year later after telling them no, and it's, they're rocking it. I, I love hearing that. Um, but, you know, where I can't be wrong is moving forward on something that doesn't work out and, and you know, leaves, you know, individuals uh, kind of helpless, whether that's with their livelihood, with being able to get another government loan, you know, you default yeah. on an SBA loan, you can't co-sign for your kids, you know, student Bankers loans. very much Whatever. like if you enable me to take a loan out for a certain amount in which I am not going to be able to pay back because my projections are wrong, you're just, you're essentially saving me from me because I don't know any better. And for everyone wondering, sure. okay, so Angelo gets a pro forma when they apply and he obviously knows that they can pay back the loan, but that doesn't, you got to just got to understand quarterly, at least that's how I had to do it. I had to submit quarterly P&Ls, interim P&Ls. I had to update the bank with my business's performance so they could compare it against the performance. That's why, so for the gym real estate company with, when they hire us, one of our, the suite of services we include is we do a 36 month performa. And I, I, a, I know that because I know what banks want, but also I want to also give that extra year in there just and also teach a gym owner. You, Hey, gym owners, raise your hands if you have a pro forma that you projected and then you have your SD versus what's actual. None of us would have like very, very right. few of us actually have it. So yeah. I, I try to get people in the habit of when we work with them and getting them this pro forma and be like, this is a such a valuable piece of information. Not only because the bank's going to ask for this shit anyway. But yeah. it's it's good for you to know, like gym owners, just like yeah, I'm doing well. But we all have guesses as to how to get somewhere and what we're gonna do. But we never really get to sit down and see it versus the actual, and that, that's what I think a, a, the cool thing about a, about a performa does. Yeah, and you know, it allows you to look in the future and actually plan for decisions that you have in your head. Like you said, I'm gonna open presale with X members. I'm gonna hire two trainers in the first 12 months. Okay. What months? Yeah. If you fill out your pro forma correctly, you should be able to clearly see the month that your first trainer is going to hit that, you know, kind of max capacity. And you need, 
you don't want to start looking for a trainer the day you need a trainer. You want to start looking for a trainer, you know, months before, because A, they're not necessarily easy to find. And B, you want them, you know, learning the ropes a little bit before they get an entire, you know, client load pushed over um, within your business. So totally agree with you. It's while it is very much for the bank, it, it is such a good tool and exercise for business owners to go through and to be able to properly, again, really narrow down all these things you're probably telling yourself uh, to, to the actual month that you should start maybe, you know, backtracking, thinking about making some of these, whether it's capital expenditures or, you know, hires or, you know, marketing campaigns, um, you know, when based on when I'm getting this loan and opening, when is the summer coming, which is going to be my slower months? Do I need to yep. do some stuff during during that? You know, it, obviously in a calendar year, that's the middle of the year. If you close the loan in August, you don't got to worry about it, you know, for you know 12 months. So those little things that you talk about as you do your business plan, but really narrowing them down to the specific month or months is going to just, you know, help set you up for better success, you know. Yep. And as you you kind of reference collecting those quarterly financials, you know, we don't do them just to throw them in a file. We do them so we can review them. You're, you know, we're the, you know, finance guys, the bankers, we're there to run those financial reports and and see if we see anything that you're not seeing as the owner. You know, our our favorite thing to do while it's a bad situation is get those reports. That role at the bank is, you know, by the way, where I started, it's kind of, you know, not little bit above our entry level kind of job you learn in industry, you're running cash flow. You know, when I would call people and and just say, hey, did you know, you know, this metric or this expense is up 13%, you know, from last quarter. And it's some um, one time, you know, marketing thing that they they were done with, but they didn't realize they were getting, I don't know, auto charged every month. You know, little things like that. We're we're there to help hopefully see things that maybe you don't and save you money or see things coming that you maybe don't see coming and be proactive instead of reactive. And I think when you're talking about both pro formas and, you know, just the ongoing collection of quarterly financials, you know, it, it it's in an effort to be able to be proactive, yeah. um, you know, both on our side and on, you know, the, the borrower or the uh, owner side. One thing a lot of people I get asked this every time I go speak or whatever it may be. It's I tell my story, gym owner yeah. bought the building, used SBA 504, leased it out to a brewery. Wait, 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 back up, Stu. How was it you were able to do that? And then I try try explain technical default through the yeah. SBA. Can you yeah. go ahead and explain to somebody how and again, this is not a method I'm pushing. Like, this is what I'm recommending. However, this is a flow of of events that could could happen um, in the case that a someone uses an SBA-based loan to purchase real estate yep. for their business to occupy 51% current, 61 or whatever percent of it's a brand new build, whatever it is, and then become an investor on that site. Yeah, so you... you you know, nailed it kind of with your percentages there. If you're buying a building, um, you know, using an SBA loan, you must occupy with that business. So, you know, we're talking gyms, obviously. If I was uh, buying a building to move my gym across the street, I have to occupy 51% or more of that. I can sublease the rest. Uh, as you mentioned, if it's a brand new build, it needs to be 60.1% or more. Um, as far as, 
you know, I guess addressing the question, I guess I'd start with making sure I under, understand exactly what you're asking with moving into that building, how to kind of navigate and become that investor. The, yeah, so let's, again, you're, what you're I'm my allowed suggestion. to say or what? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, uh, I never, I knew it would happen. I knew someday I'd get a knock on the door for a purchase or a lease option that would force yeah. me to, to retire quote unquote from being a gym owner. Mm-hmm. And that day came earlier than I expected when we had a, you know, a brewery out of this, out of Texas show up and say, yeah, I'll offer you 4.5 times your mortgage. And I was like, Oh, well, okay. That's, I guess I'm done being a gym owner today. Um, yeah. Yeah. But I have a loan out that is not in design to be an investor who leases his entire building to another entity to pay rent. And I went to the SBA and we had this conversation and they said, well, essentially we're going to put you into technical default on yep. the SBA side. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean we call the note. Yep. That doesn't mean whatever. And I'll, I'll let you finish. I'll let you explain the kind of the rest of it. But this is, I explained this to people. This was never the intention when I got into this to do with the SBA thing. It just, this is a reality of what happens. And then, you know, then you do have to proceed to, I had to get in the 504 for everyone listening. 50% was the traditional bank, 40%. You get on the SCDC side, the S and all that, and then ten percent you. But I had that big bank refi and buy out SCDC and the SBA. Yeah, yeah, no. So in an ideal world, and and just strictly you know speaking out of the playbook, you know as it's intended. If you know if that situation were to present itself, where someone was offering you know money that's too good to to turn down, effectively. Um, you know, that that would in theory that money if you went through with that sale uh would go to pay off the SBA note right um if you're going by the book kind of exactly if you're, yeah if you're selling it which makes sense how about on the, le- the the leasing it outside yeah so on the leasing it outside um you know similar process to what you went through you know inevitably when you know if if the customer didn't notify us as the bank um inevitably we'd find out just yeah. from the sense of we actually visit all of our customers on an annual basis. So not only me as a lender. That's fucking awesome. Yeah. So as a lender, myself and my team of lenders, before we do a loan for you, we come to visit you and we sit down with you, local coffee shop in your existing gym, what have you. We believe strongly in, you know, the, the fact that we're an online only bank from the sense of not having any physical branches. Um, You know, we want to meet you. We want you to meet us. We want to establish. Now it makes a- sense why you travel so much. I was suddenly yeah, like, that's, why that's, is this guy on the road three to four time. days a week? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, we get great responses too. Uh, it sounds like you had a good experience, but a lot of people say, you know, they'll walk me out to the front of the street and they point down the street and it's bank X, Y, or Z. And they say, I banked with them for 12 years and they've never walked down never the street. Yeah. Hello. And, you know, this is Seattle, Washington, and we're in Wilmington, North Carolina, and I'm showing up for coffee on a Tuesday. Yeah. Um, so so we believe in that. Um, and circling back, you know, even after you, you get a loan with us, that customer service group that kind of reviews your financials, they're going to come out and see you at least once every 12 months. So inevitably, when it's found out, whether it's brought to our attention or otherwise, um, you know, with us, we we personally would would kind of you know, take that as a pretty serious, I guess, not uh, event, right? We can't, we can't call your loan. The SBA can't call your loan. Um, we just wouldn't be thrilled and we'd be kind of harping on, 
you as a customer to find that refinance, you know, that's, yes. that's out yeah. there and, and, and just get a traditional loan to take out the SBA loan. Um, you know, we can't refinance ourselves, so it's tough for us to do it. Um, but that's kind of how it would go. You know, again, once we were made aware, we'd probably be pushing and making sure you're actually making efforts to get a refinance done. Um, you know, typically after we're able to help someone get a building, especially if it's, you know, a startup or their first time owning real estate, that's a little riskier for a traditional lender. By the time you're in there and you're getting an offer like that to have someone sublease it, that's typically going to be the grounds for, you know, a pretty seamless traditional bank loan because um, you've established your footprint and demonstrated yeah. as you did with the numbers, right? You yeah, the, the, the debt service coverage ratio was so strong on it that yeah. the the 50% of the traditional bank, they were 100% fine to refi us out, uh, you know, and also we were able to include in that the TI money that we had to give to this new tenant um, yeah. for them to get going in there. Um, yeah. yeah, so you I, just have to restructure your, de your debt just because the SBA in and of itself is intended to assist those that can't obtain traditional financing as well as specifically not be used as an investment vehicle to exactly and i'm very careful when i go into these situations i'm like yeah. guys don't try to angle this thing with that because yeah. and honestly the good great news is it was the hardest thing for me we were getting offers for a year and a half and i said no for a year and a half because i wanted to still be a gym owner like most people yeah. listening here yeah. the gym if it's cash flowing it's good it's it's a great thing. Like that offer to lease the building will also be there in the future as well to sell the building is going to be there in the future. Um, I had a business partner. Uh, I was 51. He was 49. So I, I did have someone else I had to take into consideration and their needs and stuff like that. But um, yeah, I, but I, I just wanted, again, to tip my hat to the SBA. I, I thought they were, uh, they were very, uh, collaborative in the effort and they worked with the bank and we, we were able to do a nice, good, clean break. And uh, BevCore was the CDC that I work with. And I still get, you know, they'll still reach out every now and I get a nice little email like, Hey, how are things going? Blah, blah, blah. Um, it was a brewery that moved in there. They'll be like, how's the beer? Yeah. Like it's, it, it's yeah. a very, it was so much of a, it's transactional. Don't get me wrong, but there is some emotional relationship. And there's emotional IQ to this as well. It's just different, you know, again, just by nature of what the program's intended to do, get money into the hands of those that, you know, otherwise are having a difficult time doing so. And, you know, you have to, I believe, at least actually care about what you're doing and, and that kind of future you're maybe helping someone set themselves up for um, more so than you do just slinging traditional loans around left and right. So you're right. All of it's transactional. It'd be... Um, you know, silly to say it's not, but that doesn't mean that there isn't that extra level of kind of personal connection, um, yeah. you know, and especially with us being focused in certain industries, the conversations go a little bit differently. You know, we're slinging lingo that makes sense to you and you're used to hearing every day instead of saying, okay, tell me how your business works, right? Like we, we don't have to ask that question, right? So it kind of starts you know, more personable just from the jump, just by the nature of kind of understanding, really understanding what you guys or owners are going yeah. through in fitness space in particular. Yeah. And then what I'd like to really hit on here towards the end is the biggest thing I come down to when I'm talking with the gym, like before I'm going to do an introduction with Angelo, I make sure they understand just some basics of like debt service coverage ratio. Could yep. you just give everyone just the real basic 
equation someone can run at home to get an understanding as to whether with their current debt obligations and then what this new loan would then do to that their current debt obligations uh, versus their revenue, whether they're a likely candidate for a loan. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So, you know, debt service coverage ratio for those listening is kind of the the key financial ratio or, or benchmark that um, SBA lending, you know, is kind of contingent upon. There's dozens of factors, but when you break down cash flow and the ratio that's most important, it's that debt service coverage ratio. Um, the number to focus on uh, when you're looking at kind of doing this at home or, or seeing where you'd shake out is, is your EBITDA, right? Um, earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. So um, simple math, you take, you know, your 2022 tax return, your M1 net income, which is revenue minus all your expenses, add back depreciation, interest, amortization, taxes, that gives you an EBITDA, right? Um, also, any one-time expenses that occurred through the year that maybe aren't recurring, you can you can lump those into, um, which gets you more to kind of a, a normalized EBITDA versus traditional EBITDA. Then you're going to look at not only the proposed loan uh, that you're applying for, that annual payment, so monthly payment times 12, add that to any existing debt, annual debt that you have. You're just going to divide that EBITDA figure by you know that total debt amount. Um, the SBA requires a 1.15, which effectively would mean, um, you know, for every dollar of debt, you're making a dollar and fifteen in in EBITDA. Um, Live Oak, we like to see 1.25, so we are a little bit, you know, on the above kind of what the SBA bare minimum is. There's certainly times we can get comfortable with it being below that, but. Um, yeah, keeping it as simple as I guess I can, and hopefully that was simple enough. That that's kind of that ratio and how you go about, you know, calculating it. Um, you know, just that EBITDA divided by your your total annual debt obligations for any given year. And everyone here, like, don't get confused with EBITDA and gross rev or gross profit. Don't don't get these all confused. And if I know that that's that's generally a financial term most small business owners don't have readily at the tip of their tongue. They can think of either gross revenue, or gross profit. Sure. This is where it really helps guys. They have a $20 a month QuickBooks online account or an accountant is really yeah. where that comes in because determining your depreciation and things like that, it, that's not the easiest. That's that's not the math that the average small business owner is going to uh, readily be able to call upon in their head. Um, right. To determine, yeah, and it's right? really tough without it. Um, oh, sorry, not to interrupt. Just, a lot of people focus on here's my monthly recurring revenue, here's my annual revenue. That's great and it's a metric, but I mean to make a egregious example, if you're doing 500 grand in revenue a year but you're paying your employees 600,000 and that business lost $100,000. So that revenue figure may be beyond what you ever thought you were going to reach, but if you're not managing your expenses, the business isn't worth anything and it can't support a loan payment uh, you know, at the end of the day. So, um you know, a lot of people do kind of just send over some revenue or membership metrics and they're needed as part of the analysis. But, you know, expense management, far and away the most important factor in any of this, because, you know, the more effectively and efficiently you're running your expenses, as long as revenue is at a level that's reasonable, um, you know, that's going to determine kind of how profitable you are. Um, and it's great to focus on revenue and sales and that growth. But again, if if you slip on the expense expense management side of things, that's where your ability to grow via financing is going to take a hit. 
Awesome. And I got a, I got a hard stop at 12 here, but I want to, I want to hit on this quick because everyone's asking me this too. Yeah. Can I have outstanding debt on my EIDL and apply for 7A or 504? Yep, absolutely. The EIDL was a special use disaster, you know, loan program that does not chip into any uh, other SBA loan related thresholds, balances, maximums, minimums. Um, you know, I guess quickly, they obviously, as you know, if you got one, they'll take a, a lien on all business assets. When we come in and finance, you know, let's say something for your business, we request to them that they subordinate that EIDL loan to our new loan and they do it every time, no problem. And that satisfies what we need. So, um, so can know. someone now use, I have $140,000 from EIDL and you're looking for 10%. Does that mean I can go get a $1.4 million loan 7A? Can I use those funds for that? In theory, yes, because the way that we're going to verify now, in not in theory, no. So you wouldn't want to earmark it as having been idle funds in particular. Um, you know, using debt to get more debt is not how it was intended. But everyone that has one that should have cycled through your business cash flow and cycle and balances by now, because you know they've been outstanding for a long enough period of time. So you know, if before idle you had four hundred k on your balance sheet and then you got two hundred k and you've stayed at 600 and you're saying, oh, I'm using 200K of idle, as long as it's cycled through the business by then, it's really not using that money. Uh, where where it's an issue or would have been an issue is, you know, you got that idle money two days ago, it's still fresh in the account. Uh, yeah. we, we request the statements from it. We see that it was deposited straight from the SBA. Now you want to use it for equity. That's a no-go. But everything, again, just with time, it's, it's cycled through by now to the point we're just going to ask for your bank statements for three months from your business is not going to have that X amount of money straight from, you know, the idle disbursement at this, at this point in time. So, so in theory, yes, you can. Sure. Well, listen, uh, Angela, brother, this is, um, this is great. I'm, I'm very happy to have found uh, someone that I can, you know, when I've got people here on the region real estate side to, to send them over to and, um, I'm really, again, I think you guys have a great little talk trigger there with like the the level of hospitality that you bring to finance because the word hospitality would not commonly be used in the world no. of finance and banking, but I, I think you guys have done a great job. Um, yeah, um, anyone who wants to get in touch uh, with Angelo here, um, I'm actually going to have, we're going to have a page up on the Jim Real Estate page for financing, whatever that's yep. <laughs> putting your information. It's going to zip you right over, get you in contact with Angelo over at Live Oak. And that way, if it's a good fit, um, you guys are going to be able to talk with the man who's uh, who's able to make those determinations and hopefully make something happen for you. So, um, dude, this is great. I appreciate your time today. Yes, do really appreciate it. Thanks for the kind words about uh, you know my appearance on the other podcast there. And you did great. You killed it. Everyone, I'm gonna actually have linked that up too because I think that's a great 101 that'll make our conversation yeah. a little bit more palatable. Um, yeah. I'll have that link down there below, guys. And you should listen to my boy John and Mateo's podcast anyway. They do those boys do a great fucking job. But um, already, Angelo, brother, we'll talk soon. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thanks again, Stu. Enjoyed it.